evidence and answers. recognize that we are living in the last days as described in scripture the lingering question that remains is what are we supposed to do are we living with our eyes and hearts open to god's leading or are we slowly being conditioned by the world around us you're tuned to evidence and answers with your host pat zukran pat is an author teacher and international speaker in the arena of christian apologetics the defense of the christian faith today on evidence and answers pat will be interviewing mark hitchcock and discussing the days that we live in what is this coming apostasy and what can we do if you're unable to hear this entire broadcast all of our messages are available on our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Listen as Pat Zucharin interviews Mark Hitchcock in part one of The Coming Apostasy. The church, there seems to be a rise in false teachings. What accounts for this? Are we nearing the return of Christ? Well, here to address this issue is Mark Hitchcock. Mark Hitchcock is a leading Bible prophecy expert a prolific author who has written over 20 books on the end times, a senior pastor and adjunct faculty member of Dallas Theological Seminary, where he received his master's and PhD. So, Mark, welcome back to Evidence and Answers. Yeah, thanks for having me again, man. It's great to be on. Yeah, it's great to have you on radio, and it was actually great to have you here in Hawaii, and we hope to have you back here sometime again. Well, it was. No, yeah, well, you know, it's not real hard to get talk people into coming to Hawaii, so <laughs> anytime. <laughs> yes. Well, Mark, before we begin our talk on the book of Revelation, there are several ways theologians have interpreted the book of Revelation and eschatology over the centuries, basically four ways. Uh, explain some of the schools of eschatology for us. Well, there, yeah, there's four main approaches to the book of Revelation. Really, what, the, what these approaches have to do with is timing. Uh, really, when we think about it, really the main disagreement when you think of the different areas of the way people interpret Bible prophecy really has to do with the timing of when events are fulfilled. Uh, when you think about the book of Revelation, there's a, there's a view called the preterist view. Preterist, the word preter is a Latin word that means past. And uh, preterist, there's, there's a couple different kinds of preterists, but they believe either all or most of the events in the book of Revelation already happened. Uh, that they were fulfilled back in the events surrounding the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. So that's one view. That's a preterist view, and it's really been on the rise in recent times. And there's a historicist view. Historicists basically believe that the book of Revelation and the prophecies there are being fulfilled between the first and second comings of Jesus. So we look for things to be fulfilled now. You know, like for instance, uh, the reformers, Martin Luther, you know, John Calvin, they were historicists. They saw things being fulfilled in their own day, especially Luther, you know, saw you know, the beast there in Revelation is the papacy and things like that. So you're seeing these prophecies fulfilled um, in our time. Um, the, the third view is called the idealist view. It basically believes that uh, the book of Revelation is depicting kind of the ongoing kind of timeless struggle between the church and the world at kind of at any different point. So it's kind of a, a timeless view, kind of doesn't really give any concrete meaning to the symbols in the book. And then you have the, what's called the futurist view that takes chapter 4 and following as describing real people, real events that are yet to, to happen, yet to come upon uh, the world stage. So as you can see, there's a view that sees it mainly as past, as present, one as timeless, and then one as future. So those are kind of the four basic approaches to the timing of the fulfillment of the events in the book of Revelation. Yeah. Now, Mark, when it comes to the historicist view, they view that we're somewhere in the book of Revelation right now. Right. Uh, most historicists would say, what, what chapter are we in? 
Well, they, you know, they, they don't really get that specific. That's one of the problems, I think, with the historicist view. You know, there, there's a lot of difference of opinion among historicists. There's also a very difference of, a lot of difference of opinion on, you know, what these different things mean, you know, because one generation of people sees it as one thing in their time. The next generation will see it as something else. So that's the problem with it. To me, there's not a consistency there among historicists, really, of how to take these, these events. You know, it's, it's kind of a, a current event way of looking at prophecy. The problem is some people that are futurists or that claim to be futurists, a lot of times act like historicists. You know, they're going and seeing you know, a lot of things being fulfilled today and all. So, you know, I think it's a little bit more of, of a uh, kind of ambiguous way to interpret the book of Revelation. Yeah, now a popular view that's on the rise is the preterist view that most of the book of Revelation and the Olivet Discourse, you know, Matthew 24, Mark 13, was fulfilled in 70 AD with the fall of Jerusalem. You could draw some parallels there, but what are the you know problems with the preterist view? Well, yeah, preterists, the main reason they hold their view is their statements in the book of Revelation, like that these things are going to come quickly, that these things are at hand. Of course, they say, you know, if these events are still even future today, it's been 2,000 years, you know, how can they have been at hand or, or, or things that were going to happen quickly? I take those kind of those timing statements as referring to eminence. In other words, they could happen at any moment. I mean, it has been 2,000 years now that's gone by, but when people read it, you know, every generation of Christians has believed, hey, these things could happen. And there are several problems with the preterists. One is that the view of the early church was that the book of Revelation was written in 95 AD by the Apostle John. And the problem is, if you're a preterist, the book of Revelation can't be a prophecy about events in 70 AD if it was written in 95 AD. So they have to backdate the book, and they have to date the, the writing of it back to 65 or 66 AD during the time of Nero. There are a lot of problems with that, and if they don't have that, if they can't get that date around 65 or 66, then their view, their view doesn't hold up, because obviously they have to have the book written before the events were fulfilled. So that's one of the big problems with preterism is just the dating of the book of Revelation. Another problem with the book is when you read the seven churches, the letters to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3, these look like churches that have been around for at least a generation because there's a lot of apathy and apostasy within these churches. You know, if the book of Revelation was written in 65 AD, as preterists say, I mean, these churches are less than 10 years old. And, uh, you know, that four of them, you know, you're given really a pretty scathing denunciation by our Lord. So uh, things like that, you know, those are some of the arguments, the, the difficulties, I think, with the preterist view of Revelation. I mean, uh, the, the main problem with it, though, would be they can't consistently interpret the events in the book in a literal manner, because if they do, it's clear that many of the things, if you take them with any degree of literalness at all, that those things just simply didn't happen back in AD 70. Yeah, what are some of those things that they would have problems with if we took it literally? Well, like you just take the fourth seal judgment, it says that a fourth of the world's going to die you know, and that, and that one judgment. Now, what they do is they say that that fourth of the earth means a fourth of the land, you know, the people in the land of Israel. But again, that's not generally how the word's used, how the word's used. It just means, you know, the earth. Again, you go over to, you know, the sixth trumpet judgment, a third of the people on the earth die. So between those two judgments, half the people on the earth have died. Well, again, that didn't happen in AD 70. Go and, and you look at the judgment, the, just the trumpet judgments, the bowl judgments. I mean, the degree of severity of those, you 
know, the blood turning to water, or the, the water turning to blood, you know, meteors coming and hitting the earth, you know, the uh, plagues that are that are uh, out poured out. Those things didn't happen in AD 70. You know, they, they try to, to shoehorn all of that stuff into the, the siege of Jerusalem by the Romans and all of that. You know, if you, when you go through and just read the book of Revelation, if you were to just have a person that really was a Christian, a believer in Christ, but really doesn't know anything about Bible prophecy, I think, and you were to tell them, look, just read through the book of Revelation, or what would you think this is about? They'd probably say, this is talking about something that's in the future, because this has never happened before. You know, this kind of stuff, this kind of global scope, and this kind of severity. To say this happened in AD 70, again, you have to use a very inconsistent method of interpretation, I believe. Yes, and what about the date? I mean, that is key of when the book of Revelation is written. It seems... What's the evidence that it's written later in John's life? Well, there's several things. One is the external evidence. You know, when you're when you're dating a book of the Bible, we have what's called external evidence. That's the things outside the Bible. You know, what people said about it, and then you have internal evidence, the evidence within the within the book itself. The external evidence overwhelmingly favors the book being written in 95 A.D. Irenaeus. We have a statement by Irenaeus, one of the great luminaries of the early church, probably the greatest theologian of the second century. Irenaeus, in his book Against Heresies, says that uh, the book of Revelation was given to John near the end of the reign of Domitian, the Roman emperor. Well, Domitian reigned until AD 96. So most people then, based on that, have put the book around 95 AD. And the reason Irenaeus is so significant is uh, Irenaeus was a student of Polycarp, who was from Smyrna, which is where one of the churches to which their book of Revelation was originally addressed. And also Polycarp uh, knew the apostle John. So, you know, it'd be hard to find a better candidate to tell us when the book was written than Irenaeus. You know, this guy was well-known in the early church, knew Polycarp, who knew John. Polycarp's from Smyrna. So you'd be hard-pressed to find someone more reliable, and uh, that's what he tells us. And again, you just go, I mean, all the, the great people in the early church, Jerome, Eusebius, Victorinus, the first commentary, the oldest one we have on Revelation, they all date the book in AD 95. So just the external evidence itself is really overwhelming. You know, and it's still the overwhelming view today that the reason preterists really dated in 65 is because they have to. Right. You know, I, mean, that's, uh-huh. I mean, that's really yeah. more the issue. It's, you know, they're, they're kind of forced to that. Also, just the conditions within the, the seven churches I mentioned, you know, the church of Laodicea, the last of the seven churches, that church is very self-sufficient. They're wealthy. He says, you have need of nothing. Whereas we know that there was a devastating earthquake in the Lycus Valley there in, in modern-day Turkey, where Laodicea is, and the city was destroyed in AD 60. Well, five years later, they weren't wealthy and self-sufficient, but it took about 30 years to rebuild the city of Laodicea. And we know in 95 AD, that would have been a really good description of this church. They're wealthy, they had need of nothing, they're self-sufficient. So just a lot of these factors like this uh, within the book itself. Uh, Another thing is uh, the emperor Domitian loved to banish people. He didn't kill people. Remember, Nero had Peter and Paul executed. But the Apostle John is banished to an island. That's very consistent with what uh, the the Emperor Domitian did, uh, banishing people to islands like that to just kind of get them away. So 
Uh, there's a lot of things like that. Actually, I, I wrote my PhD dissertation on that topic. Exactly. Yeah. So you know, it's something um, that I've uh, enjoyed studying, and I think is uh, you know it's important. It certainly puts the uh, you know if the Book of Revelation was written any time after AD 70, then preterism can't be true. I debated uh, Hank Hanegraaff some years ago on this topic. People can go to pre-trib.org, and uh, they can watch that and get a lot more information about that, the dating of the Book of Revelation, if they're interested in that. Yeah, and that was a really good debate. It'd be really informative for people to watch. Two guys. It would be. Yeah. From yeah, and my dissertations on that website too, pre-trib.org, if people want to read it. So wow. They'd have to. You have to be pretty. Uh, you know, I always tell people when you're reading a dissertation that sometimes it might work better than sleeping pills. You know, if you're having problems <laughs> resting at night. But uh, you know, if someone, in case there is someone that's really interested in that topic, or maybe they're, you know, kind of dealing with some preterists, and preterists will always bring up this early date of the book. And uh, you know, I've got a lot of a lot more arguments in there, a lot more detailed arguments in the book about this. Yes. Now, Mark. So. It seems the most reasonable way to interpret Revelation is literally, but how should we, you know, interpret the book of Revelation? Um, I mean, we don't want to be, uh, I guess, what's the word, hyper-literal, or we don't want to be, what I guess, what people call newspaper theology, trying to correct right. too much of Revelation. You know, Sputnik is that comet falling from the sky and, and things right. like that. We don't want to go too far that way. So what are the parameters and how we should properly, literally interpret Revelation? Well, when we talk about literal interpretation, you know, that's an umbrella term, and literal interpretation includes what we might call, you know, plain literal, but also figurative literal. You know, in other words, a literal interpretation includes within it figures of speech and metaphor and symbolism and all of that. You know, we use that kind of, we use those kind of statements all the time. You know, someone will say, you know, my dog kicked the bucket the other day, you know, or something like that. Well, everybody knows that's a figure of speech that means your dog died. So it's a literal statement, really, that you're being, that you're making, but you're making it in in a figurative way. And really, Jesus gives us in chapter one of Revelation, the key for how to interpret the book. Because in, in Revelation one, Jesus is pictured there as standing in the middle of seven lampstands, and he's holding seven stars in his right hand. And in chapter 1 and verse 20 of Revelation, Jesus says, those seven lampstands are the seven churches, these seven churches he's writing to in Asia Minor. And he says, the seven stars in my right hand, these are the seven angels of those seven churches. And so what Jesus is telling us at the outset of the book is when you see something that is symbolic, that symbol refers to something that's literal. And 46 times in the book of Revelation, you have right in the context a statement that tells you what the symbol does represent. So, you know, a lot of of times right in the context we're told, for instance, in chapter 12, uh, we see a great dragon and we see the dragon's tail sweeps a third of the stars of heaven. Well, you're told a little bit later in Revelation 12 that the serpent there, or this dragon, is the serpent of old. He's Satan. He's the devil. And we're told that these stars are his angels. That would be demons or angels who fell with him. So many, many places in the book of Revelation, there's what I call the built-in interpretation, where it tells you what the symbol refers to. But we believe that the symbols have literal reference because that's the the pattern Jesus gave us in his interpretation of chapter 1. But, you know, like, for instance, when you come to chapter 6, you have a rider, you know, the second rider is a rider that goes out on a red horse, and he has a great sword in his hand and is dripping with blood. 
Well, everybody knows when you read that in the context, it's referring to war. Because in the previous symbol, the rider on the white horse goes out, and it says this one comes and takes peace from the earth, this rider on the red horse. Well, obviously, to take peace from the earth, it has to be warfare. So, you know, we're, there, there's parameters. You know, a lot of people think because the book of Revelation is symbolic that we can just kind of launch out there on our own and kind of just interpret it however we want to. But there there are parameters for, for literal, grammatical interpretation of Scripture that we apply to the Bible to make sure that we have interpretations that don't get out there, you know, beyond what the Bible intends. And we all have to be careful about that. Yes. Now, Mark, some would argue that the futurist view is a latecomer, but that's not really the case, is it? No, no, it's not. I mean, the early church took the book of Revelation futuristically. You know, you read Irenaeus and others. I mean, Irenaeus believed in a literal three-and-a-half-year reign of the Antichrist. I'm on the earth. Um, he believed in a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. Um, he believed in a, a Roman Empire that, you know, a ten kingdom form of the Roman Empire. He believed in a literal thousand year reign of Jesus on the earth after he returns to the earth. So, really, when you go back and read Irenaeus, his eschatology really sounds a lot like the eschatology that I embrace and that you embrace. And so, it was very futuristic. He saw the Antichrist as future to his day, which is interesting. Irenaeus is writing in the middle of the second century. And he's not interpreting the book of Revelation as being fulfilled in 70 A.D. And, you know, you'd think if anybody would have been doing that, it would have been the people nearer to that time. They would have known if it was fulfilled then. But yet he's taking a futuristic view. And uh, so does Victorinus. That's the oldest Greek commentary we have on the book of Revelation. He takes a futurist view as well. So... You know, it's it's not a it's not new. Now, you know, just because a view's older, old doesn't mean it's correct. Right. But certainly, you can't level the charge against it. You know, it's some kind of Johnny Come Lately view. Right. You know, what caused this switch from a literal interpretation to more, I guess, allegorical? You would say, what caused that change in church history? Well, you know, Origen and others, and the Alexandrian school of interpretation, you kind of have the Antioch school, which was more literal in the early church, and you have the Alexandrian, the North African school. You know, it's hard to know exactly what people were thinking, but I, it seems that many people saw in literal interpretation as being just kind of more rigid and kind of less spiritual. I mean, it's kind of always been that way, you know, when you when you think about our Constitution even now, you know, in America, you know, how people interpret that. I mean, there's sometimes it's seen kind of as more uh, intellectual and all to take things not as the author literally intended them to be, but kind of in a more spiritual type way or more fluid way. And it seems like that's what happened because a lot of it, too, came down to the fact that, you know, a lot of these prophecies in the Bible refer to Israel and to the Jewish people. A lot of people didn't like that, you know, the idea of a, a you know, restoration of the Jewish people, they saw these kind of prophecies as fulfilled in the church. So they began taking a lot of these prophecies fulfilled in the church, because after all, if we are the church, you know, you kind of like to see things fulfilled in what you're part of. And so there's a lot of that allegorization, spiritualization, whatever, you know, that, that took place. But that's not how they took it in the, the earliest days of the church. The futurist interpretation was a really the dominant one early on. Yeah, and I think with the Roman world becoming Christianized, you know, with Constantine and the persecution coming to an end, it seemed like that great persecution talking, you know, that was talked about in Revelation wasn't really happening and, and that the church was actually becoming victorious. So it seems mm -hmm. that also contributed to more of the allegorizing of the church triumphant than the church under persecution, would you think? 
Yeah, no, I think that's probably true. Yeah, when a lot of these, a lot of the the, the shifts began to take place, that's right. And, you know, of course, the other thing too is, you know, I have to remember that you know Augustine came along, and Augustine and, and Tychonius, and they basically were the ones who brought in really kind of systematized the idea of you know a millennial view of we're in the kingdom now. There's not a literal future thousand year reign of Jesus. And you know, once that kind of got settled a little bit, you know, you went in for the dark ages. You went a period about a thousand years. You know, first of all. Most people never had a Bible. You know, we have to remember that most people didn't have a Bible of their own, and most people, if they had, uh, you know, had a copy of the Bible for themselves, they didn't know how to read. So, yeah. you know, you're pretty much just dependent on what somebody told you. And uh, when the printing press came along with Gutenberg and others and, um, you know, the 14th, 15th century, you know, the Bible began to be uh, printed and more widely distributed. Literacy rates began to go up. That's when you see this great surge in, you know, futurism, a great surge even in, in premillennialism, people believing that, you know, these prophecies are literal, that Jesus is going to come back and literally reign for a thousand years. And so, you know, a lot of that was just the fact that, you know, People didn't have a Bible and they couldn't read. You're, you're just kind of dependent. I mean, that's why we call it the Dark Ages. There wasn't a lot of a lot of uh, enlightenment during that time spiritually either. Yeah. Now, Mark, for those of us who take a literal view of Revelation, I I think I heard you say on stage once that uh, we're seeing a lot of these things as futurists interpret it coming to pass in world events coming around, not necessarily being fulfilled, but setting the stage. Right. what we're seeing in Revelation. What are some of those signs? Well, first of all, you know, the one that people point to all the time is uh, the restoration, the regathering of the Jewish people to their land. You know, 1948, I mean, it started back in the 1870s, but in 1948, May the 14th, we have the rebirth of the modern state of Israel. And, you know, that that's really, that's a miracle. I mean, in many ways, it's called the miracle on the Mediterranean. I mean, you've got all of a sudden, you know, the rebirth of these, this nation, you know, people have been gone from their homeland for 2,000 years. Their language had died. It was basically revived in the late 1800s. There they are back in the land. There's 6 million Jews living in the land of Israel today. Um, almost, you know, about 40% of the Jews worldwide now live in the land of Israel. And the reason that's important is so many of the prophecies in the Bible really hinge on the Jewish people being back in their land. You know, for instance, uh, another another sign or another kind of a, a setting of the stage is the prophecy of Gog and Magog in, Revela- or in, in uh, Ezekiel 38 and 39 that speaks of what I believe is a Russian Islamic invasion of the land of Israel in the end times. And obviously, the land of Israel can't be invaded. The Jewish people can't be invaded there in the land if they don't live in the land. So... There's a lot of these kinds of prophecies that have to be uh, fulfilled, uh, that, that really hinge on the fact that the Jewish people are back in their land. Um, you know, the Jewish people there in the land of Israel are going to look up on their Messiah when he's returning. Uh, they're going to flee to the mountains, you know, during the tribulation period. Uh, they're going to enter into a treaty with the Antichrist that grants them some type of, of, of peace there in their land. So none of that stuff can happen if you don't have Jewish people in the land. So that uh, that's the number one sign. We call that the kind of the super sign of the end times. Um, you know, a couple of other things that we see that are kind of setting the stage, I think, today. One would be uh, globalism. I mean, it, you know, it's amazing. You look at our world today. I mean, it's incredible when we, we see how the world has shrunk, even in my lifetime. You know, economically, I mean, you know, you have problems in some small country in the world that affects the, the global markets. Uh, we see the world, uh, you know, together really uh, small politically. 
You know, what one person does in one country affects everyone else. So th- there's a globalism that really fits what we see in Revelation 13, where in the end times, one man is going to rule the world politically, economically, and uh, religiously. And you know, we see today how that could happen. So we're, we've kind of come back to the Tower of Babel almost, you know, back to what was what was present back in Genesis chapters 10 and 11. Um, I mentioned Gog and Magog, Ezekiel 38 and 39. Um, I think that's a, an incredible prophecy of a Russian Islamic invasion of Israel. Of course, you know, who's in the news now every day? Yeah. I mean, it's Russia. I mean, you know, it's like you can't turn on the TV, at least in America, and, uh, you know, not see, see Russia there. So, and, you know, Iran is mentioned in that passage, ancient Persia. So a lot of setting of the stage of these events. Now, we don't know how much longer the stage setting will last, um, but there are a lot of things happening that lead me to believe Christ's coming could be very soon. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers radio broadcast. We hope you enjoyed Pat's show today. If you find this broadcast to be of a great value to you, would you please consider partnering with us? Evidence and Answers relies on generous support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate and keep us on the air, you may do so right there online on the homepage of our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. You'll see we have a wide variety of resources available to you, including Pat's articles, additional audio, and Pat's books. So be sure to share our website with your family, your friends, and of course your church. Evidence and Answers is grateful for our key sponsor, Highland Capital Management, providing investors with alternative investment solutions. To learn more, visit them online at hcmlp.com. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide reasons for faith and hope in Christ right here on Evidence and Answers. Evidence and Answers.